Welcome, and thank you for joining us for today's CME podcast. PrimeMed podcasts are dedicated to providing on-the-go clinicians with pertinent, evidence-based primary care content that won't take too much time out of your busy schedule. Information about CME credits and faculty for today's podcast can be found within this activity's landing page on primemed.com slash podcast. That's pri-med.com slash podcasts. Be sure to also go to this location in order to claim your CME credits after the program. Thank you and enjoy. Welcome to Evaluating the Evidence for Treatment of Menopausal Symptoms. My name is Dr. Janet Pregler. I'm a general internist and I practice at the Iris Cantor UCLA Women's Health Center. I have no financial relationships to disclose. There are three learning objectives for today's session. The first is to apply up-to-date information about the natural history of menopause to improve the care of individual women. The second is to counsel women about risks and benefits of systemic hormone therapy for menopausal symptoms based on their personal risk profile. And the third is to advise women about the relative efficacy, risks, and benefits of commonly used alternatives to hormone therapy including lifestyle changes, cognitive behavioral therapy, non-hormonal pharmacotherapies, FDA-approved CIRM-based therapies, complementary and alternative therapies, topical therapies for atrophic vaginitis and genitourinary syndrome of menopause, and laser treatment of vulvovaginal atrophy. So I'm going to start with a case, and this is a typical case that we might see uh, at the Iris Canner UCLA Women's Health Center a 52-year-old woman who presents with complaints of hot flashes, irritability, and diffuse muscle aches after stopping her hormone therapy when she heard it causes strokes. However, a friend who lives in San Diego gave her a copy of a Harvard Women's Health Watch that suggests that since she has a high risk of heart disease, she should take HT. And the same friend gave her a local newspaper article quoting famous gynecologists who said the same thing, and she asked for your advice. When you return to the room after examining her, she presents you with a list of additional questions, including, I'm having trouble with my memory. Is it from my menopause? My friend has depression. Is it because she is in menopause? Does estrogen cause breast cancer? If I take estrogen, is bioidentical safer? And my friend got laser vaginal treatment uh, in Santa Monica. Should I do that? So one of the things that has really informed my practice um, with um, better information uh, is um, research on the natural history and associated symptoms of menopause. So the first uh, question in our talk is, African-American women and Latinas are more likely to report severe hot flashes, true or false? It turns out the answer to that is that it's true and that women who identify as Black or African American or Latina do report more hot flashes and more hot flash severity. Um, this is um, information taken from the Penn Ovarian Aging Study, um, which followed 255 African American and white women through the menopause transition. As you can see, um, there are women who begin having hot flushes um, 10 years uh, prior to their final menstrual period, 
And hot flushes can continue uh, beyond 10 years um, after clinical menopause. I think it's also important, though, that, um, as you can see here, uh, at no time do more than 50% of women report severe hot flush symptoms. Most women have minor or moderate symptoms. Some really don't recognize any at all, and that's normal. Um, I've actually had patients come seeking reassurance um, because they'd heard that um, they should be having a lot of symptoms during menopause and they weren't. So again, I think our, individualizing our approach is very important because women's experience of menopause definitely varies. The second thing that uh, we've learned in the last decade is that the systemic symptoms of menopause are not all associated with the degree of vasomotor symptoms or hot flushes. Um, it used to be thought that uh, really women had to be reporting hot flushes to have other symptoms related to menopause. We now know that that's not true. Um, sleep disturbance occurs in women without vasomotor symptoms, so we definitely should consider menopause as an etiology uh, if women report sleep disturbance um, during their transition time. Cognitive changes reported by some women during the perimenopause improve when the menopause transition is completed. So it's very common uh, that women undergoing uh, the menopause transition will report um, just general lack of ability to concentrate. Some people have called it the fog of menopause. It's very common that women notice difficulties with naming, um, remembering words, um, and that has been uh, looked at in studies and um, characterized as related to hormonal status during the menopausal transition. I will note that it's very important when women report these symptoms that they be evaluated to ensure that they really are mild and consistent with the menopause transition. Uh, I think like many um, people who treat a lot of women in menopause, I have seen a few patients who in fact were presenting as an example with early onset Alzheimer's um, where this was misdiagnosed um, as menopause transition. And again, a um, even a fairly cursory history would have determined um, that the memory uh, issues they were reporting were not consistent um, with what we see during menopause and uh, represented another diagnosis. Depression is also more common during the menopause transition. Again, as a primary care physician, that's really important for me to keep in mind. And also that joint pain, breast pain, and menstrual migraine um, also often present or worsen um, during the menopause transition. Um, knowing that can be helpful in terms of counseling regarding uh, treatment. So here's data from study of the women's health across the nation, the SWAN study, um, which now is an over 20-year um, follow-up of um, perimenopausal women and aging. This looks at the risk of major depression uh, during the menopause transition. And we used to question whether uh, increased rates of depression that we saw uh, in women in their late 40s and early 50s were age-related, um, perhaps related to um, psychosocial issues for women at that age, or whether they were related to 
hormonal changes. And the SWAN study showed um, definitively that it is hormones. Um, so as you can see, um, age uh, did not change the relative risk of major depression in this study. Um, but what was associated with the relative risk um, was um, being in the perimenopause and then um, in the early postmenopause. And, and as you can see, women in early postmenopause um, had over four times relative risk um, of major depression. Um, whether or not uh, this was adjusted for vasomotor symptoms, there was still a very significant um, effect. So I think this is very useful in counseling women when they present with depression in the, in the perimenopause. Um, for many women, this is um, a very good time of life for them. Um, they can have a hard time understanding why they should be feeling sad when at many times this is a uh, time of life when there are really positive things happening in terms of career, family, life trajectory. Um, so I think understanding that this is a um, hormonally driven uh, issue for many women can be helpful. Now, in terms of treatment of depression in uh, perimenopause and menopause, it's important to understand that the recommended approach is the same. Um, we do not have evidence that hormonal treatment alone uh, will resolve depression in menopause, although certainly hormones might be considered as an adjunct. Um, if women are experiencing severe symptoms, as an example, that might be disrupting sleep or causing pain that could be uh, adding to um, factors that would uh, worsen depressive symptoms. Now, there is some interesting data that was published in the last couple years around whether taking hormones during the menopause transition might prevent um, depressive um, symptoms. Um, and this was a study um, which looked at women in the menopause transition and the effect of hormone therapy on developing menopause, uh, excuse me, developing depressive symptoms. Um, and what was found was that women were, that were randomized to um, hormone therapy, uh, in this case, transdermal estrogen and intermittent progestin, um, were less likely to develop depressive symptoms. Um, now, to be clear, these women all did not have depression at the time of enrollment. Also, women who were later in the menopause transition and postmenopausal um, did not benefit. There was greater benefit for women with multiple uh, life stressors. So there's no recommendation now to routinely prescribe hormone therapy to women to prevent the onset of depression in menopause. Um, but certainly if women are using hormone therapy for other indications, this is a potential benefit um, and deserves further study. Now, what about hormonal treatment for vasomotor symptoms? Um, we know that hormonal treatment is very effective for vasomotor symptoms, reducing them. Uh, by 80 to 90% in most studies. So the question uh, usually is for women who have moderate to severe symptoms, what are the risks? And the best data that we have for the risks of hormone therapy uh, comes from the Women's Health Initiative. 
As you'll recall, this was not a trial of treatment of menopausal symptoms. It was a large trial designed to determine whether giving hormone therapy prevented uh, chronic conditions and would have benefit as a preventive treatment. However, it's by far the largest trial to let us know risk. One of the things to understand about the um, women that were studied in the Women's Health Initiative is that they were older uh, than women that we usually treat now for uh, menopausal symptoms. Uh, they were uh, on average in their 60s. Um, so that did affect um, the overall findings, although I'll show you the breakdown for uh, women uh, by age in that study. So in the Women's Health Initiative, women with a uterus were randomized to conjugated equine estrogen and medroxyprogesterone acetate, remembering that giving estrogen to women with a uterus without a progestin reliably uh, significantly increases the risk of endometrial hyperplasia and cancer. Um, so it is standard that women with a uterus uh, who are given estrogen would require a balancing progestin. The Women's Health Initiative um, estrogen and progestin arm was stopped early by the Data and Safety Monitoring Board because after 5.6 years, it was determined that the chronic disease uh, benefits uh, would not outweigh risks. So what were the risks that were found for conjugated equine estrogen and medroxyprogesterone acetate? Stroke, breast cancer, DVTPE, dementia in women over 65 years, gallbladder disease, urinary incontinence, and breast tenderness. Benefits, um, two were expected, um, decreased risk of osteoporotic fracture and improvement in vasomotor symptoms. And also incidence of diabetes was reduced. And this has been a very um, consistent finding when women are taking uh, postmenopausal hormones. Now, a couple things to note is that the breast cancer risk um, increased the longer women uh, were taking hormones. There was a second arm that looked at women who'd had hysterectomy and therefore could take estrogen alone. They took conjugated equine estrogen. Uh, this arm was also stopped by the Data and Safety Monitoring Board, in this case, after a little uh, over a mean seven-year follow-up, because, um, again, uh, it was determined that statistically benefits in terms of chronic disease prevention would not outweigh risks. The major, the major difference if you're comparing estrogen plus progestin to estrogen alone is that in the estrogen alone arm, an increased risk of breast cancer was not seen. So we saw the increased risk of stroke. We saw the increased risk of DVTPE, gallbladder disease, urinary incontinence, and breast tenderness. Um, the same benefits in terms of vasomotor symptoms, reduction of osteoporotic fracture, and decreased incidence of diabetes, but um, a decrease in the risk of invasive breast cancer um, was found and persisted after 13 years um, of follow-up. So how do we think about this overall um, when we're individualizing it for the care of women? Um, so certainly when we're talking to women age in, the, in their 50s, these are women in the perimenopause generally having the most severe uh, symptoms of menopause, um, but also uh, with relatively less risk um, as an example of stroke, uh, which was a major driver of um, adverse events um, 
in the Women's Health Initiative. Um, so as you can see, um, this breakdown shows global adverse events um, by age group in the Women's Health Initiative. All-cause mortality was not statistically different um, overall. The um, balance of global events, as you can see, uh, was small. Um, so for women who were randomized to estrogen and progestin in all the age groups, um, there were slightly more adverse events, adverse events being um, heart attack, stroke, invasive breast colon and endometrial cancer, hip fracture, pulmonary embolism, and all-cause mortality. For women without a uterus, uh, in the 50 to 59-year age group, um, there was actually benefit, less global events. Uh, again, because um, the increased risk of breast cancer was not seen for that group, and the risks in terms of, um, in particular, stroke were mainly seen in older age groups. For this reason, uh, some people had asked, well, uh, if a woman has a hysterectomy, should we routinely prescribe hormones uh, while they're in their 50s? Multiple expert panels have said, uh, no, this should not be routinely done um, because the benefit there would mainly be in terms of um, cardiovascular issues, and there are other uh, proven approaches to that that don't have the uh, side effects or concerns that we see with hormones. I think the other thing to take from this data is that risk definitely increases as women get older. So for women who are using hormones for symptoms, it's important to reassess uh, when they're taking them and if they still need them and to attempt to um, stop hormones uh, as women age, um, particularly because we see that increasing risk of stroke. So these are, uh, I think, the two most comprehensive statements about the use of hormone therapy from the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists. Menopausal HT should not be used for primary or secondary prevention of heart disease at this time. But recent evidence suggests that women in early menopause who are in good cardiovascular health should be considered candidates for relief of menopausal symptoms. And again, this is the standard approach. In 2017, the USPSTF reiterated that um, they recommend against the use of combined estrogen and progestin for the prevention of chronic conditions in postmenopausal women, um, whether or not they've had a hysterectomy. Uh, this statement was made um, in part to answer the questions about uh, using hormones for women with hysterectomy uh, in their 50s. Again, the determination of the USPSTF was that that should not routinely be done. So how do we prescribe hormones? Uh, again, there's no evidence that one formulation um, of hormone um, is uh, safer than another. Certainly some experts um, point to um, data that suggests that there might be a lower risk of uh, clotting events with transdermal uh, estrogen therapy. However, um, this is not part of FDA recommendations, and it's considered that there's increased risk of um, clots and certainly stroke no matter how uh, estrogen is administered. 
Um, different doses have not been comparatively studied, but again, lower doses seem prudent. Um, as I said before, it's essential to add progestin in women with a uterus to prevent uh, endometrial hyperplasia and cancer. One third of women on unopposed estrogen develop advanced hyperplasia after three years of treatment. Some clinicians will offer women with a uterus placement of a levonorgestrel IUD instead of a systemic progestin. Um, this is an off-label use, which is not FDA approved. Um, given the very low risk of adverse events with the use of progestins, most experts do not recommend this. Um, however, um, based on data of the use of progestin IUDs for treatment of endometrial conditions, um, it is probably safe if women choose to use it. It's always important to monitor for symptoms of endometrial hyperplasia and cancer, um, in particular um, asking about vaginal bleeding or spotting um, when women are on hormone therapy. And we would anticipate um, that... Um, after a year of hormone therapy, uh, uh, which is um, with, a, with a balancing progestin, which is continuous, or with the use of a progestin IUD, if that's done, um, that bleeding should not occur. If it does occur, then it should be um, investigated. For women who are given um, cyclic progestin, um, bleeding should be regular and um, any irregular bleeding should be investigated. Now, what about bioidentical hormones? Our patient asked about those. So um, bioidentical hormones are compounded. Um, they uh, generally contain multiple forms of estrogen that are found naturally in the body, E1 um, or estrone, which is the primary estrogen uh, postmenopausally and in men, E2 or estradiol, which is the estrogen um, made by uh, the dominant follicle during reproductive life, and E3 or estriol, uh, which is another um, systemic uh, natural estrogen. The American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists does not recommend the use of bioidentical hormones, and the reason is safety concerns. Um, as we've talked about, endometrial hyperplasia and cancer occur with the use of systemic estrogen. If the progestin, which is given, is not appropriately balanced, um, then uh, it will not be effective um, in terms of preventing this complication. Women who say, I want to take um, an estrogen and uh, a progestin that are like what I uh, made during reproductive life can be offered pharmacologic formulations, estradiol, micronized progesterone. These are the natural hormones that the ovary uh, made. And these are preferred given available data because we have safety data in terms of the endometrium. I'd also point out that um, pharmacologic estradiol is available in multiple formulations, uh, oral, patches, gels, mists. So however women prefer to um, apply or use systemic estradiol, um, it can be given in a pharmacologic and studied formulation. So in terms of systemic hormone therapy, just to summarize, it's the most effective treatment for vasomotor symptoms with a reduction in symptoms of 80 to 90%. 
Uh, systemic hormone therapy does not improve health-related quality of life in women uh, without vasomotor symptoms overall. This was studied in the Women's Health Initiative. So again, for women who feel well, giving hormone therapy um, did not somehow make them feel better. And that's a question that women sometimes ask. The overall risks of hormone therapy are low, uh, as we've shown. For women with a uterus, estrogen without a progestin increases the risk of endometrial cancer. Um, and that's important in terms of counseling and monitoring women. And both estrogen and estrogen plus progestin increased stroke risk in WHI. Um, again, I find that the increased stroke risk for most of my patients um, is really important in terms of um, how they would value health outcomes. Based on this and other risks, including increased risk of invasive breast cancer for women who use progestin, as well as DVT um, and PE, Long-term use of hormones for chronic disease prevention is not recommended. Now, I will point out that there's been interest in um, trying to address um, the issue of avoiding uh, progestin in hormone therapy um, with a uh, combination conjugated equine estrogen and CIRM uh, drug, which includes vasodoxaphene. Um, This CIRM uh, has been shown to treat vasomotor symptoms and prevent um, osteoporosis. Um, there is 24 months of endometrial safety data. However, uh, breast cancer effects, um, stroke, and DVT risk um, compared to standard therapies um, are not known. So given the limited data on this medication, it's not routinely recommended. Um, there is no head-to-head -head study showing that it's safer or better than estrogen plus progestin. But we certainly have women who, when they take a progestin, um, in particular, will find that um, it has um, effects in terms of mood. Um, they don't like it. Some women will report stopping it because they um, recognize that it's the progestin element that's causing side effects. And for them, um, this could be uh, considered and would certainly be preferable to um, unopposed estrogen for women with a uterus. Now, what about non-hormonal treatment? Uh, and I would say uh, in my practice, and I think this is typical for primary care practice, the biggest group of women who um, have severe vasomotor symptoms and uh, we avoid hormone therapy are breast cancer survivors. Um, but there's certainly many other women with symptoms who would prefer not to take hormones or who have tried them and have had side effects um, that were un unacceptable to them. And for those women, we're looking for alternatives. So the second question I have is, which of the following has been shown in randomized trials to improve sleep in breast cancer survivors with hot flashes? A, cognitive behavioral therapy, B, zolpidem, C, gabapentin, or D, all of the above? Um, and the answer is D. All of these um, have been shown to improve sleep. So I think non-hormonal pharmaceuticals for hot flushes are, are fairly well known to uh, most clinicians who treat uh, patients with menopause. These include SNRIs, SSRIs, anti-seizure medications, including gabapentin and pregabalin. Um, those are the standards that we think about. 
many experts uh, recommend avoiding SSRIs in patients on tamoxifen um, because they may reduce metabolism to the active metabolite. Um, in terms of which of these would be chosen, I think we certainly think about um, if we're treating more than one condition, as an example, as a woman who, uh, an example might be a woman who presents with both depression and vasomotor symptoms, um, or presents with uh, accelerated migraine and vasomotor symptoms, uh, that might drive uh, which drug we choose. There are um, other alternatives. If the standards, as an example, women have side effects with all of these or can't take them for some reason, uh, clonidine does work. Again, it has many side effects. I'd say it's very rarely used now, but I have had the occasional patient where it might be tried. There's emerging data for oxybutynin. Um, so again, for women who might be using that for um, uh, urinary issues, uh, it may have benefit for vasomotor symptoms as well. So here's a typical study of, pharma, of a effective pharmacologic treatment for hot flushes. This um, happens to be escitalopram. And as you'll see, women recruited into these studies are generally women with a large number of hot flashes. In this study, the baseline was um, somewhere between 9 and 10 uh, hot flashes per day. As you can see, there was a statistically significant reduction with escitalopram, but I'll point out also a reduction with placebo. Um, this was not statistically significant, but yet there was a trend. And this is very consistent over studies and important when we're counseling women. I'll come back to that. Anxiolytics for hot flush related sleep disturbance work. Um, this happens to be a study of Lunesta or uh, Esepiclone. Um, obviously, we don't recommend these uh, medications uh, long-term for women, but there are situations, and, and I find commonly with uh, breast cancer survivors, those who go into menopause suddenly, as an example, because they've had oophorectomy as a BRCA patient or uh, who um, go into menopause because of chemotherapy, uh, where short-term use for severe symptoms can be helpful. Now, what about alternative and complementary therapies? So many, many uh, alternative and complementary therapies um, are used and have been studied um, for uh, vasomotor symptoms. Um, this was a study um, funded by the National Institutes of Health called the Herbal Alternatives for Menopause Trial, or HALT. And I would say that its results are very typical for studies of um, alternative and complementary therapies. So again, you see those baseline uh, hot flushes. You see a very significant reduction with estrogen, again, usually 80 to 90%. And you do see a lower number of hot flushes with women, in this case, randomized to the black cohosh arm. Um, but also with placebo. This was not statistically significantly uh, different. So what about the placebo effect, alternative and complementary therapies, and hot flushes? So it appears that the efficacy of alternative and complementary therapies is similar to placebo, but the placebo benefit is a 25 to 50% reduction in vasomotor symptoms, which uh, most clinicians would feel is um, 
clinically important. Um, and certainly many patients feel that way. Um, you can see from the quote here that um, this really has been uh, known or um, been an intuition of clinicians uh, for many, many years. So I think it's important that when we talk to women about alternative and complementary therapies, um, because the effect is different than a placebo does not mean that women don't experience benefits. So I think it's important not to say they quote unquote don't work uh, because women clearly feel better. On the other hand, for women with moderate to severe symptoms, it is useful to tell them that there are pharmacotherapies that have benefit beyond those shown for the range of complementary and alternative therapies. Now, what about lifestyle interventions? It turns out weight loss is effective in reducing hot flushes. Um, this was from a randomized study that showed that weight loss improved not only hot flushes, but also urinary um, incontinence. Unfortunately, consistently, we found that changes in physical activity, specifically increasing exercise, does not change hot flush symptoms. One of the things that changed my practice um, was studies showing that cognitive behavioral therapy had durable benefit in terms of improving quality of life for women with um, vasomotor symptoms. So we will occasionally see patients who um, come with severe vasomotor symptoms. We treat them with um, hormone therapy and they just don't get better. And we think about the differential diagnosis of that. And certainly we might think about hyperthyroidism or tuberculosis or lymphoma um, causing their symptoms. But it turns out in studies that um, the most common alternative diagnosis in that situation actually is um, anxiety. And I think uh, this relates to the benefit that we see for cognitive behavioral therapy for women with severe symptoms, even if they don't have a diagnosis of anxiety. Um, it's definitely been found that um, how women view um, their hot flushes, how they think about them is important in their quality of life, and that therapy related to this can benefit them even when the therapy itself um, is completed. So it used to be before these studies came out that I really thought long and hard about referring women for cognitive behavioral therapy in the context of menopause and vasomotor symptoms. I was really asking myself, do they have anxiety disorder? Um, now, I think based on this data, you don't need to do that. Um, if a woman would like a cognitive behavioral approach, certainly this could be tried. Or if she's not improving with other uh, treatments, um, this also could um, be of benefit. Now, what about stopping menopause hormone therapy? Uh, again, uh, for women with a uterus, we see this increasing risk of breast cancer uh, if they take hormones over longer and longer periods of time. Uh, for any woman postmenopausally who's using estrogen as she's getting older, we're seeing an increased risk of stroke. So this is certainly a conversation that we want to be having. This is from a uh, survey of women in uh, two large uh, medical symptoms uh, who had attempted to stop hormone therapy, and I think it has some good information for clinicians. Uh, women were likely to be able to discontinue hormone therapy if they received a doctor's advice to do so, or they felt they had learned to cope with symptoms. 
Um, not unexpectedly, if their symptoms didn't improve or they had vaginal bleeding, that was also a reason that they would uh, discontinue. But importantly, factors associated with unsuccessful discontinuation were trouble sleeping and mood swings or depression. So again, I think it's very important when we're trying to discontinue hormones that we talk to women about sleep, we talk to women about mood, and we offer them alternatives if needed. Um, I will also say that um, there has been scientific study of tapering versus abrupt discontinuation. Um, this has not been shown to improve health-related quality of life or improve quit rates. I will say that for some patients who are reluctant to stop hormones, I will offer tapering uh, more because I feel it gives them a sense of control over stopping the hormones, and I have um, found that to be beneficial. But overall, in studies as a routine approach, um, it was not shown to uh, be better than abruptly stopping the hormones. Uh, it also is important to note that for women with perimenopausal um, depression, um, hormone withdrawal may increase depressive symptoms. Certainly we can think about why that would be um, with sleep and as we've already discussed, mood. Um, so as an example, a woman with perimenopausal depression who is diagnosed with breast cancer, there's a need to stop the hormones um, this really should be discussed and monitored with the patient. Now, finally, what about um, dyspareunia? So uh, genitourinary syndrome of menopause are the changes that we see with reduced effect of estradiol um, uh, or E2 on the um, urinary and vaginal tissues. We generally think of dyspareunia or painful intercourse, um, as well as vaginal irritation. Um, women can also experience um, burning with urination, um, more frequent uh, urinary infections or urinary urgency. Certainly for many women, um, a vaginal lubricant um, during intercourse is sufficient um, for the issues that they're personally having. For women who experience vaginal symptoms more generally and also um, to improve um, vaginal uh, symptoms during sex, using regular moisturizers can be helpful. Um, these are over-the-counter um, moisturizers like Replens or Vagisil. Local hormone therapies are more effective, and the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists has an opinion that progestins are not required when they're used at local doses. These are preferred to systemic therapies for women with only vaginal symptoms and also can be added to systemic therapies um, if vaginal symptoms persist. These include a uh, silicon ring, um, which is inserted every 12 weeks. Vaginal tablets, um, which are inserted um, twice weekly after a run-in period of um, daily for 14 days. And so-called low-dose topical estrogen. It is um, important to be careful with low-dose topical estrogen because this may be more associated with a risk of endometrial hyperplasia, probably because it's more difficult to dose. Um, conjugated equine estrogen vaginal cream, a half a gram twice a week was studied for a year for endometrial safety and found to be safe. Um, an additional hormonal therapy, which is local, is DHEA. 
um, inserted um, uh, at bedtime. Uh, this is certainly an alternative. It works, um, but there is not data as an example that it would be safer for a breast cancer survivor. It's important to understand that um, androgens are um, converted to estrogens in the body. And so giving androgens also uh, would uh, be a concern, although the overall risk of these local therapies is considered low. Most experts do feel that they can be used in breast cancer survivors um, with counseling. Uh, it's never been shown that use of um, low-dose um, local hormonal therapy increased risk of breast cancer or breast cancer recurrence. Some experts have concerns about using these in women who are being given aromatase inhibitors um, because of the concern that it might um, increase um, estrogen levels in the body. Um, I would say that um, that is a theoretical risk um, and something that um, uh Certainly, I would discuss um, with the patient in the context of shared decision-making about using uh, these um, medications. Systemic hormone therapy is only indicated if also used for vasomotor symptoms. Uh, it does increase urinary incontinence, so its effect overall can be problematic in terms of genitourinary issues. Uh, there is a uh, systemic... Um, CIRM, ospemethine, um, which has been FDA approved for treatment of um, vaginal atrophy. However, it increases hot flushes and its long-term endometrial safety is not known. So um, I would not prescribe that um, as a first-line therapy. Women are definitely asking about fractional CO2 laser. They'll often refer to it by the brand name Mona Lisa. Uh, this is not approved by the FDA for vaginal atrophy treatment, although it has been marketed to OBGYNs in this way. It is approved for surgical use. Um, observational studies show some promise, but more research is needed. Um, certainly some women do report benefit from this. Um, some experts, uh, however, are concerned about potential longer-term effects of um, repeated uh, laser treatments to um, tissues with vaginal atrophy. So in summary, what do we know about approaching menopause? Um, moderate to severe hot flashes affect nearly half of women, but nearly half of women don't have them. Um, a subset of women can have those symptoms uh, far before the menopause transition and 10 years or more after. The risk of major depression is heightened during the menopause transition. Hormone use may prevent some depressive symptoms, and hormone withdrawal may exacerbate depressive symptoms in women with depression, so we need to think about that. Hormone therapy is not recommended for chronic disease prevention. The overall balance in terms of risks and benefits uh, was not beneficial in the Women's Health Initiative. Um, looking at a subset of women with hysterectomy in their 50s, um, there was a very small benefit in terms of global events, but expert panels have said this does not mean that we should routinely give hormones uh, to women in their 50s. 
Systemic hormone therapy is the most effective treatment available for vasomotor symptoms and generally safe. For women with a uterus, progestin should be given to avoid endometrial cancer. When choosing hormone therapy, women should be aware of increased risk of stroke, venous thromboembolism, and if they were taking a progestin, breast cancer. And risks of hormone therapy increase with age, particularly stroke, and hormone therapy should be revisited um, if patients are continuing because of symptoms. In terms of non-hormonal treatments, we generally use SNRIs, SSRIs, and gabapentin. Anxiolytic sleep aids do work. We want to avoid their long-term use, obviously, but they can have a role short-term, particularly for women who have a abrupt menopause transition because of oophorectomy or chemotherapy. Cognitive behavioral therapy does improve quality of life in women with hot flushes. Alternative and complementary therapies are similar to placebo in reducing hot flushes. That's about a 25 to 50% reduction in symptoms in most studies. So we can expect that women will, will report that they felt better uh, with these therapies. And weight loss improves hot flushes. Unfortunately, exercise does not. In terms of treatment of vaginal atrophy, topical treatments are efficacious. They're preferred as first-line therapy. Local estrogen treatments can be used without systemic progestins um, if they are used in their low-dose formulations um, and are considered um, the standard most effective. Um, systemic therapies include hormone therapy and ospemaphine. Um, these uh, would be used only in specific uh, circumstances. Uh, so I uh, enjoyed being able to review recent information about uh, menopause treatment with you today. Thanks very much. We thank you again for joining PrimeMed for today's podcast. Remember to claim your CME credits for the program on this activity's landing page on primed.com slash podcast. That's pri-med.com slash podcasts. Also, be sure to check out all of our other podcasts and primary care activities on primed.com as well. See you next time.